would, right? We all would want to be a part of a family of followers of Jesus who lived out verses 1 and 2. Look at this. They are ready to do whatever is good. They don't slander or talk about others in a way that seeks to injure their reputation. They're a group of people that's peaceable. They're a group that's considerate. With the implication not just towards one another, but especially and even towards those who they disagree with. They show true humility towards all men. I mean, if not just Kettlebrook as a family, but if, if all the families, meaning churches, in our area were to do this, you know how many opportunities we'd have to talk to people about our leader, Jesus? Like, the opportunities would be limitless. Why? Because this is the exact kind of counterculture of what our culture is. And this is a compelling life. This is a compelling life. One that is ready to do what's good, that doesn't slander or talk about others in a way that seeks to injure their reputation. It's a group that's peaceable, considerate towards even those they disagree with, those who show true humility towards all men. I mean, that is compelling to me because it's just not normal. It's not normal. It's not what we experience in the world today. And there isn't a lot of polarizing about this. Right? I mean, compared to the kind of bombs that we see lobbed out on Facebook and other places, 140 characters or less going back and forth about why you're wrong, why you're an idiot, this and that. I mean, this kind of life is a life that's not focused on getting people to agree like us in every single way, in every single topic, just so that we can hang with them. Right? It, it's not a family life that needs to fight to be right. It's not a life that uses power to be over others. It's a family life that's lived humbly because Jesus lived his life humbly. A life that seeks to do good based on the fact that we have a good news God in the person of Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I was going to joke that since we've got this covered, we should just close in prayer. But really, none of us have this covered, right? We're not going to have this covered until he comes back. But this is God's intent. And when you look at those two verses, if we could do those two verses interpersonally, man, that would be compelling. Because that's what Jesus did. But the reason it's compelling is he's the only one who could have ever pulled it off, and he did. He's the only one who perfectly every step of the way submitted to and followed the lead of his loving father. Right? Every moment, think about that, every day for 33 years, he lived out verses 1 and 2 in relation to God. 33 years while he was on earth in relation to man. Never once missed it. Never once missed the mark. That's amazing. I probably had trouble doing it for 10 minutes. He did it for 33 years, every single moment of every single day. And that's why the gospel is the key to what God has saved us to as a family and what God has saved us from as a family. Verses 1 and 2, it talks about what God has saved us to. That's his intent, that we would individually and together as family live at that kind of life that in essence demanded an answer like how could you do that how is that possible verse three look at verse three with me again this is what god has saved us from this is kind of like polar opposite of verses one and two verse three at one time we too notice paul includes himself you guys and me we can include all of us. At, we too, one, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated 
and hating one another. Now, how many of you would raise your hands that this is a super compelling life? It's not, right? That's not super compelling. That's all too often what life is like. We're like, that is not compelling because it's polar opposite of what he described in verses 1 and 2. And what he's talking about, he's saying, did you notice the word were? That's past tense. That one time we too were, he's talking about this like extreme heart makeover, so to speak, that has happened in the lives of the followers of Jesus on the island of Crete. They're not who they once were. They had a makeover in their hearts that affected their lives where once they were foolish, they were disobedient. They were enslaved and deceived by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Now note here, Paul isn't saying passion's wrong. Paul isn't saying pleasure's wrong, right? That would be misinterpreting it. It's not what he's saying. He was challenging them. He's like, your passions and your pleasures were misguided. They were misdirected. They were fulfilled in things that, that didn't live out verses 1 and 2. Okay? And they resulted in you simply being enslaved, where you were, in, in a sense, powerless to change your situation. You couldn't change it. And, you know, we could be like, well, that's nice for Crete. Crete had a lot of problems. I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal about Crete, and those guys were messed up, right? We could say that. We could just kind of brush it off. But what's true for Crete, I think I can get you to see what applied to you and me. I want to put up two words that are used in this passage and see if any of us can relate. Okay, I'm going to put up the malice and define it. I'm going to put up envy and define it. Malice, a feeling of hostility and strong dislike with a possible implication of desiring to do harm. Okay, envy please. A state of ill will towards someone because of some real or presumed advantage experienced by such a person. And if you put up that next slide, Gary, malice and envy lead to being hated and hating one another. So now, if you were to think about those terms, malice and envy, and thought about if you experience those, have, or even do on an ongoing basis, I think we'd all have to say, (whistles) turn around and walk away, right? Because we can identify with those feelings, We can identify with feeling ill will towards someone, and we can definitely, for sure, identify with envy, being envious of someone because we presume or we assume that from what we see of their lives, they have an advantage over us. They have a money advantage. They have a friend's advantage. They have an intelligence advantage. They have a, I mean, you could just keep going down the list. Um, They have a a physical looks advantage. I mean, right? And we're envious, and, and we feel malice. And I know I'm guilty of this, so I would imagine if I am, you might be too. And I think when we're honest with ourselves, the the reason that we don't maybe like to admit this is because society kind of holds up this ideal of perfection. And society says it's bad to admit our weaknesses. Does anyone agree with that? We have to have this kind of perfect image. And if we admit that we're messed up, we're really kind of, we're shattering that image. I want to give you a super liberating truth, though. If, if you'll accept it, God already knows I messed up and he already knows you're messed up too. So we can just admit it because like he already knows. And so here's the deal. That's either very liberating or it's very threatening. It's very threatening if we feel like we have to keep this picture perfect image in life. 
it's very liberating if we know that's not true. And in essence, we say, you know what? I can't make others feel that about me. I can't control what they think. And it's too hard to just simply manage everybody else's expectations. So I'm just going to be me. I'm going to admit I messed up. Now, does that mean just don't do anything about it? No, that wouldn't be true to Jesus either. But to admit that we all have flaws. None of us are perfect. And the difference is, what do we do with that? Do we admit it and then allow Jesus to empower us to be different? Or do we seek to guard our reputation and then put more pressure on ourselves that we have to make ourselves better? We have to do right on our own. It's interesting. If you put up this next image, there's uh, probably a little company that you guys have heard of in Menlo Park, California. Probably many of you haven't, but maybe a couple of you have heard of this company. It's called Facebook. So they did an article uh, that, and the title of the article says, Research Links Heavy Facebook and Social Media Usage to Depression. And I just want to read a couple excerpts from this article. The research determined that the more time young adults use social media, it was, it was kind of doing a study saying, okay, social media is becoming more and more prominent, so we need to study the effects because we see some potentially negative effects if people use it in ways that it wasn't maybe designed for or overuse it. So it says the research determined that the more time young adults use social media, the more likely they are to be depressed. The social media platforms analyzed in the questionnaire included Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Snapchat, Reddit, Tumblr, Pinterest, Vine, LinkedIn, and LinkedIn. The last one I made up. According to the questionnaire results, the participants used social media 61 minutes per day and visited various social media accounts 30 times per week on average. What made the study alarming was that more than a quarter of the participants were classified as having high indicators of depression. There were significant and linear associations between social media usage and depression, whether social media was measured based on total time spent or frequency of visits. And here's the part I want to get to. Why would heavy social media usage cause depression? The exposure to highly idealized representations of peers on social media elicits feelings of envy, and the distorted belief that others lead happier, more successful lives. The exposure to highly idealized representations of peers on social media elicits feelings of envy and the distorted belief that others lead happier, more successful lives. Now, is social media bad? No. Does social media do this? No. It just kind of gnaws at what we already feel in our souls. Right? It gnaws at what we already feel in our souls. I'm missing out, is what we feel. They've got a better marriage than me. I mean, their kids, come here, Jenny, they don't even have a hair out of place. I remember one time, this is hilarious, my wife and I were still taking family pictures. This was probably 10 years ago. Ben's going to turn 11 in January. And he, I think it was his first kind of year. And you know, have you ever had one of those photo shoots where it takes, like, forever, and by the end, you're like, Calgon, take me away. I just, like, am sick of this. I want to be done. I'll do whatever it takes to be done. So that's what this was going like. I think I had a tripod, and we were setting it up, and we were at our house in Milwaukee, and we're on the steps. And so the fi- I, I would say the photo that we decided upon, but that's not true. It's the photo I decided upon because I was like, stick a fork in me. I'm done. Ben has got snot running out of his nose. He's got a comb in his mouth. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm like, this is who we are. This is the stage we're in. And she's like, we can't send that out. I'm like, but it's us. But we don't see that in the posts, right? 
we think, I bet their kids never talk back. Their kid, their dog, it's just so fluffy. Their home, I wish my home was like that. Man, they're living the good life. And I'm not is the implication. I'm missing out. And we become, become enslaved to these unrealistic, idealized expectations of life. And thus, where purpose, where meaning, where joy are found. Right? We begin to believe the lie that more stuff makes joy and meaning and purpose and brings it. Or, you know, people's approval is going to bring joy or meaning or purpose. Or a new role at work will bring joy or meaning or purpose. Or you fill in the blank. And so when we still haven't found what we're looking for, we feel malice. We feel envy. And it's so easy to creep, creep into the kind of that, that hate, even though we'd probably not define it like that. And, and, you know, we might say, I mean, come on, Ryan. If we're to honestly assess our own lives and we're to compare it to those people's lives, and whoever, those people is just whoever you feel like is like further away from God than you. Right? We all do it. We can be honest. So whoever those people's lives are, and you assess it and put it up to your life, you're like, you know, I mean, sure, I'm not perfect, but they're really messed up. Like, they're really messed up. And we do this comparison thing where we think I'm really, like, a lot better than them. And I want to do an illustration, use an illustration that I've used before, but I think it makes the point so well that I'm going to do it again. So I need four volunteers, and this is going to be an easy volunteer opportunity for those of you who are volunteer-averse. I will not embarrass you. I will not, like, you know, make fun of you. Things Maybe a little fun of you, but I won't embarrass you. Okay? So I need three volunteers and then one more volunteer. Okay? This is an easy one. Three of you are going to stand back in this back corner and throw a ping pong ball. So I need three people back here. Janet, Richard, come on back. Max, okay? And then I need that last, I think it was Jackie. Jackie, I want you to go way up by the curtains up there, by the black curtains with the decoration. Jackie, you're going to be God. Don't let it go to your head, okay? You're going to be God. All right. So here you go, Max. Here you go, Jackie. Here you go, Richard. So Jackie's God. Like I said, Kale will talk later if it kind of gets a little bit too big ahead of here, but I don't think it will with Jackie. I know her. And uh, Max and uh, Richard and Janet, here's what I want you to do. One at a time. Here, Janet, I'm a, Jackie, I had you go here. I'm going to have you go back here just so that my illustration works for sure. Okay. So here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to one at a time try and take and wing that ping pong ball. And I want you representing humanity, okay, to get it all the way over to God. One at a time. Now it's got to hit her in the air. It's got to get there in the air. No rolls, no anything. So Janet, no rotator cuff injuries, please. I don't know what our liability coverage is. All right. All right. Go ahead and catch that. Okay, there's one. Good job, Janet. Okay, Richard, you're up. Southpaw. Okay, Richard, good job. Max, bring it home. Nice, nice. Thank you. Give our volunteers a round of applause. (laughs) Right, that's the point I'm trying to make. So now, what did you notice about Janet and Richard's and Max's throws that were different? What did you notice that was different about them? OK, 
Okay, Dave says not much. <laughs> One through like a girl. Okay, what else? Okay, so they went different lengths, right? So maybe, you know, one went this far, one went this far, one went this far in relation to each other. But they each went different lengths. What did you notice that they all had in common in relation to God over here? They all fell short. None of them made it. Right? And so I think so often we get duped. We get trapped into this understanding of relationship with God and, and following Him. And when we read a passage or a verse like verse 3 and we say, yeah, but I'm better than... Let's just grant that you are. Let's just grant. I'm not even going to argue that. That maybe your life is a little bit better, so to speak, than somebody else's life. But what did we see? And this is what Scripture would say too, that, that none of them on their own, through what they could do, through just themselves and what they could live out, none of them reached over to a perfect, holy God. I mean, it's in essence as if, you know, if we continue that line of thought, like we're here standing on one shore of Lake Michigan, and, and Jesus is on the other shore, and you know you can't see across Lake Michigan, right? I don't think you can. I don't think you can. And we're throwing our good deeds and saying, God, look at me, and God, look at me, and God, look at me, right? That's what it's like, because we can't even see it's so different. He's so different than us, even if we do the best that we can on our own, that it's like throwing our good works our good deeds all the way across Michigan, Lake Michigan, with the hopes that somehow we'll get there. With the hopes that somehow we'll get there. See, but that's the error of our thinking is that we think, and, you know, I, God would look at us with compassion and he'd say, Ryan, he'd say, Rick, he'd say, Nate, he'd say, Max, <laughs> you're still enslaved to thinking that relationship with me is based on you. And if it's based on you, how are you ever going to be good enough? How are you ever going to be perfect? You can't be. You can't be, right? But it's in essence what he's calling us to do is he's instead calling us to lay down this false idea that our good works can earn us right relationship with God. Lay them at the cross and extend, change, exchange them with the truth that we need to not depend upon our own good works, but we need to depend upon the only one who is ever fully good, the only one who is ever fully pure, the only one who ever would be. Yes, it's big. It's supposed to. to spit. We need to exchange it with his perfect obedience, with him never getting it wrong, with him always going to be, will be forever, perfect, spotless, pure. This is what verses 3 to 8 are talking about. We need to be saved from being enslaved and trying to break free of malice and envy and hatred in our own power. And we need to exchange that mindset and receive the truth that Jesus is the only one who can free us from those things. And if you talk to someone who actively follows Jesus and is in a relationship with him where they put their trust in him, they can tell you even through his power it's hard. But we have to exchange it. The way he does this, as verse 5 talks about, he saves us. 
when the kindness and love of God appears, we place our faith in his kindness, his love, his obedience on our behalf. He saves us. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He washes us clean through our trust in his perfect obedience. And then he actually lives inside of us and begins to change us. Jesus has changed and continues to change Barry's life as he has placed his trust in him for relationship uh, with Jesus through his faith in him. And that has changed him, and that's what changes a whole community. That's what changes a whole family as people place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and then work out, and he begins to change them from the inside out to be more like him to be more like him. It's as if this passage with Barry in it would look. Go back to verse 4 with me. Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved Barry, not because of righteous things he had done, but because of his mercy. He saved Barry through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on Barry generously through Christ, Jesus Christ our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, Barry might become an heir, having the hope of eternal life. And the reason that's in plural is because in that context, there's a whole bunch of berries. And in our context, there's a whole bunch of berries. Now, and as we talk about this series, Compelling Christianity, we, we have to admit, though, part of the reason that we as Christ followers have lost the right to speak into people's hearts and lives regarding Jesus and the impact he makes for eternity, but also for the everyday, is because if we live out verses 1 and 2, Jesus is supposed to make us humble, but somehow, for far too many instances and far too many occasions, following Jesus has made us proud and arrogant. See, for far too many people, they think of Christians as the people they don't want to go to for advice, as the people they don't want to or can't share their struggles with because they're perfect in their mind, as the people who will only judge them and affirm what they already believe to be true about Christians. But family, envision with me, our family and our friends, our, our neighbors and our coworkers seeking us out because we are the most humble people they know. We're the, we're the best listeners who ask the best questions we, we're the most active in our community, living out the reflection of our good news God, Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus really does impact our marriages and how we love and serve one another. He really does impact our parenting and the motivations and our actions. He really does impact even our motivations in going to work each and every day in the marketplace. He really does impact our friendships. He really allows our lives to show his kindness and his love and prove the reality true that the kindness and love that has appeared has saved us from living in malice and, and envy and being hated and hating one another. And they see that it saved us too, being a community that seeks to do good whenever they can, that seeks to be humble, that seems to be peaceable, that seems to be loving and kind towards all men, even and especially those we disagree with, even those of different political affiliations, even others society would label as hating, that the people who follow Jesus are different and they're differently good. That's what I would call compelling Christianity. 
that's the kind of community and family that I want to be a part of and that I think we are a part of. And family, don't mishear me. I didn't say perfect. I didn't say perfect. Remember, we just did this whole thing. That's impossible. He's the only perfect one. But even in our, even in our mistakes, even when we get it wrong, and we will get it wrong because we're not Jesus, at least I'm not. You're not either. When we do get it wrong, we're the people who are quickest to ask forgiveness. We're the people who are quickest to say, I'm sorry. We're the people who are quickest to humble ourselves so that whether it be those who already follow or those who don't yet follow, we can point everybody, including ourselves, back to the kindness and love of Jesus. <laughs> and that's what allows us to have a relationship with us, with him. Not us, but his kindness, his love, and our trust in that. Family, the gospel is the key to what God has saved us to as a family, living out verses 1 and 2 and verses 4 and 7. The gospel is the key to what God has saved us from, not living out verse 3 on a regular basis. And it starts, it continues, and it ends with the person of Jesus Christ. So not just this Sunday, but as we continue to live out our family life as a group of followers in one local church here at Kettlebrook, may we be the type of family that has a compelling Christian example to a watching world. Not a perfect one, but a compelling one. Because we keep it about Jesus, we keep it about his good news, and we humbly see ourselves as fully dependent upon him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we have in this season much to be thankful for. And I just thank you for the person of Jesus. I thank you for how he has changed us and he continues to change us. I thank you that his grace is way bigger than, than my and our mess-ups. Um, I thank you that as we looked at this morning, he, he offers through relationship with him to change eternity, but he offers to change the here and now too. He offers to change our hearts in such a way where we could be the people who society looks at and says, man, they're different. Rather, they're kind when they shouldn't be. Man, they're loving when they shouldn't be. Man, they give grace when no one else would. Man, they don't let it have it like others do. They don't lob bombs back and forth. They don't need to fight to be right. They, agree, they, they can agree to disagree in dialogue and, and in all of it, point people back to the person and the character of Jesus. So we, we thank you for him. We acknowledge that he is the leader of this family, and we pray that as we continue to focus on him in our lives individually and in our lives as a family, that our character would become more like his so that we would have the right to sit at the, the hearts of people's lives and show and tell the good news of our Savior. And all God's people said, Amen.